today we're going to be looking at a, a larger portion of text um, than we normally do. Uh, but before we jump into that, I want to give you kind of a, a little mini description, so to speak, of different ways to approach the different types of scripture sections in the Word of God. Because in the Word you have various types of literary form, and so you can't really approach them the same, uh, whether in your personal Bible study or in preaching. Uh, so in the Word, for instance, just a few of them, you've got uh, wisdom literature, uh, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. These are usually kind of sort of maybe smaller bite-sized chunks that don't necessarily flow together. They sometimes seem a little fragmented, uh, unlike a larger portion, like a story. You also have the epistles, uh, which are the New Testament letters, um, usually also sm uh, smaller kind of systematic topics, uh, so a little bite-sized, maybe not as bite-sized as Proverbs. They flow together more because they're a letter, but the letters usually have sections, so they're a little bit easier to tackle and a little more straightforward in instruction. And there's also, there's narratives, which is what the book of Acts is. Uh, narratives are more like big stories, uh, so also maybe like uh, Exodus or Genesis. Uh, they're larger stories. Uh, then the Gospels, such as John that we just went through for a couple years, uh, they kind of have a mix of, of all of these things, because it's the story of Jesus, but yet Jesus taught, like the epistles in some sections, but he also used a lot of sort of little uh, statements, little bits of wisdom, little memorizable uh, kind of uh, phrases. So the Gospels are, are kind of fun to go through because they have all different types of these uh, sort of uh, literary uh, approaches. So that said, some of the sermons that we're going to be seeing in the book of Acts over the next year or so might have a slightly different feel than some of the sermons that we have gone through in the past, uh, say, for instance, in Second uh, Peter, like we just did, or in John that we did for two years, uh, that uh, John was easily able to be broken up into smaller little bits. Uh, so a lot of times in Acts, it'll be a little bit different than what we've been used to the last probably three years or so. But the goal in all of these approaches to Bible study and also to uh, sermons, uh, the approach and the goal is always the same, and that's to magnify Jesus Christ. Uh, the goal is always that, to preach Christ and him crucified, to point our hearts towards him. Uh, all roads must lead to Jesus when it comes to our time in the word and our time hearing the word being preached. To have us become more amazed at him and who he is, to know him, to walk away from this place with the aroma of Christ on us. So today's going to be a good example of, of a different format. And uh, so I want to take just a, a moment to kind of share with you just so you kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. Um, I, I think I've shared with you before uh, that a lot of times I approach a, a sermon to me as, as kind of like baking a cake. Have I ever shared this before? I think I have. All week long in my proverbial kitchen, which is my desk, uh, I'm making a mess. And uh, there's, there's flour everywhere, there's uh, broken eggshells everywhere. I mean, if you walk in during the week, there's just, you know, there's books and articles open and, you know, the Logos Bible study software is open. It's just, it's just kind of a mess. Uh, you don't see that when you come to church. Uh, this is kind of like coming to the restaurant, so to speak. Uh, I just come out and I just present the cake. And you don't really see all the mess that's kind of in the background. Sometimes I come out and I present the cake and it looks and tastes amazing, and sometimes I'm very aware, sometimes it's just okay. And that's also okay. <laughs> Regardless, you don't get to see the leftovers. And before we dive into Acts, because it's a slightly different approach in a lot of the sermons coming up, um, I want to share a little bit of that process 
of building this cake, making this cake, partly because it's important for you to see uh, how to approach different types of texts for your own personal Bible study, um, but it's also kind of important for you to see how I even approach uh, sermon presentation. Uh, one thing I learned from other pastors, I don't, I don't remember when I first learned this, it was maybe, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, is that it's not enough for me just to teach the word, but I need to also teach people how to read the word. Uh, and, that, and, and even when it comes to sermons, I can't just come here and just say, hey, here's what the word says. It's important for me to show you how I got to my conclusion so you're not just hearing those truths but even seeing how we got there because that's going to help you to go home when you open up the word. Um, you're picking up a lot, a lot of those things. Not that I go and I say, oh, here's what I did, but that you kind of you learn those things over the years. So there's two primary kind of distinctions in my sermon prep. Um, this is really general, really kind of quick overview. Uh, but I first do what is called exegetical work. Then I also do, uh, next is expositional work. Uh, exegetical work asks the question, what did the original author intend? What's, why, what did he put in there? And the word you can kind of remember is excavate. So exegesis, excavate. We're gonna dig out whatever the author already put in there. We're not gonna try to pull out something he didn't put there, because then we're just making stuff up. Right? We're gonna, we're gonna try to dig out what the author, in this case it's Luke, what did Luke intend to put in here? So these are going to be your facts, your context, your maybe political or social climate of the day, the, the culture, um, the, the, audio, the original audience of who is being written to, uh, language, all those types of things. That's kind of your excavation. And you need this to be the foundation of your cake. This kind of becomes the cake batter, so to speak. So I'm putting together the cake batter. Then you form the cake and you put the cake in the oven and when you take it out, and you've got this formed cake, then the next question you ask is, what truth does God want us to see and behold through this text? So if the exegetical work is the baked cake, it's the facts, then the expositional work asks the question, what is the truth today that we're going to celebrate? What's the point of this cake? Right, so we know what the cake is. It's vanilla cake. It's chocolate cake. That's the facts that we've ascertained during our exegetical work, but now we've got this blank cake, we're going, so what are we gonna celebrate? What am I gonna, what am I gonna put on? What's, what's the frosting? What's the message that I'm gonna write on the top of this cake? What's the whole point of this? So what is the truth? So you can think of expositional, the, the word, you just think of the word expose. What truth, what joyous occasion are we gonna expose to each other today? Is it a birthday? Is it a retirement party? Uh, is, it, is it a congratulations, graduation? What is it? What, what's the truth that we're going to celebrate today? What truth do we excavate that God wants us to have exposed to our hearts? And that's how we approach it. It's the answering the question, okay, so, so what's the point? What's the whole point of the cake? What are we doing here? How does this text that we've excavated, how does that enlarge in our view of who Jesus is? Now, a cake with no frosting is just bland and dry. And you kind of think more like a, like a seminary, just kind of a technical uh, reading. You're just kind of to get facts. There's a, a, like a textbook, right? And we don't want that. That's not what Sundays are for, right? Maybe your Bible study, I'm not saying the Bible study is you know, bland and boring, but sometimes your Bible study is all about just getting facts and head knowledge, and that's it. 
right? That's sometimes what our studies bring us to, and that's okay, but we want to go further than that. But a cake that's maybe just frosting alone, well, at first, maybe we kind of enjoy that because it's sugary and all kinds of stuff, but it's really just a mess. Right, so if I get up here and I just preach a bunch of truth, but I don't have any foundation, scriptural foundation, I'm not showing you how we got there, then you're just going to walk away just believing what Pastor Joby said, and there's no foundation to it. There's no substance. It might be an emotional, fun thing. You know, we got, walk around with, you know, with frosting all over our faces. We're like, oh, it was great. Oh. But you're going to get sick to your stomach if that's all you're eating. Right? So we need both. All right, so that's why uh, every sermon, uh, in a more simplistic way, I, I kind of look at it. My approach to every sermon is I first want to teach the mind, and then I want to preach to the heart. And so all my sermons will have some mixture of that. Maybe it's only 20% teaching and 80% preaching. Maybe sometimes it's going to be 60% teaching, depending on what it is, if it's a very complicated matter. So maybe 60% teaching and then 40% uh, preaching. But I'm always going to be doing both in my sermons. I want to teach us what is being excavated out, and then I want to preach to the heart. I want that frosting, the occasion that we're celebrating here today. And this is why uh, almost all of my, my photos, my graphs, my charts, anything that I show you is usually always at the beginning of a sermon because I'm kind of giving the background, and then I go from there. I always kind of feel like if I'm still sort of teaching towards the end, it's, it's kind of like I'm just sort of, you know, pumping the brakes a bunch throughout a sermon, uh, and it's like I, I put the, the frosting on the cake and I, I put it back in the oven. So I, always, I typically try to do the teaching part in the beginning and then go into preaching. Sometimes it blends. You, don't even, you wouldn't even tell the difference. Sometimes I can't even tell the difference. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you see kind of more a stark change from teaching to preaching. Uh, so today... It's going to be a little more obvious in how I go back and forth, and it might feel maybe a little more like pumping the brakes a bit, uh, because it's a larger text, and it's a narrative, which is just different. It's hard to do these big stories in one sermon. Actually, this is going to be broken up into two sermons. So what I'm going to be doing for today is doing a lot of the exegetical explanations during the reading of the scripture, which I don't often do, so we can kind of lay our foundation throughout, and then we're going to work our way into the truth that we need for today. Sound good? All right, got one, woo! <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word, and we're amazed um, at the differences, uh, the way that you speak to us uh, from many different uh, types of people who uh, were those original authors over a course of 1,500 years, 40 different authors throughout the course of the writing of Scripture, over those 66 books, 40 different authors. Some were kings, some were peasants, some were fishermen, different countries written from different continents, and in different literary styles. And yet, it is one book, because it truly actually only comes from one author, and that is the Holy Spirit of God. God, the way that you amazingly weave together narratives to poetry, to instruction, proverbs, prophetic words, over the course of those 1,500 years of writing, and have all of it expose the truth of Jesus Christ, the, the truth of the grace of God given to sinners, 
your story of the redemption of mankind, you being glorified among your enemies. It's, it's, it's incredible the way that you have woven this storyline from Genesis to Revelation. And so help us as we dive into a, a different part of Scripture with a um, different approach even to some of our Bible study, some of our, our preaching, uh, that we would first ask that question, what's going on in the story? And then secondly, what's the point? What are you, what are you teaching us? What do you want us to know? That we would walk from this place with the aroma of Christ upon us. So help us, Lord, as we open your word today. That not only your word would be exposed to our hearts, but that our hearts would be exposed to the word. And that your word could shine into the, the dark places of our hearts, still filled with either sin or grief or sadness, pain, sorrows. That your word would be just salve and ointment to our pains. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace towards us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Acts chapter 3, we're diving into today, starting in verse 1. I'm going to start off just this first part, just going through verse 10, then we'll kind of continue as we go. So this is after the events of Pentecost. It says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. It was about 3 p.m. And a man who was lame from birth, paralyzed from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask for alms of those entering the temple. A little bit later in the text, we're going to find out that this guy is over 40 years old. And so he's been carried to the, the beautiful gate of the temple uh, his whole entire life. Um, you know, probably close to 30 plus years, uh, if not even more. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. So, so picture this. He's been doing this for 30-some years, maybe 40. He doesn't expect people to really give to him, so he's looking down. He's, he sees them coming, but he's looking down, and he's asking for alms like this. We know he's looking down because Peter and John, they say, look at us. Look up. All right, so you figure this guy's been doing this for 30-some years. This is his life. He's been a staple at the temple. Everyone knows this guy. And so he just kind of knows, eh, some people give, some people don't. Maybe he was looking down because maybe they've not given before. We don't really know. But we know he's looking down because they tell him to look up. And he fixed then his attention on them. And now, now he's expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. So they know the guy. Like, hey, that's the guy. And these people, they were filled with wonder and amazement of what had happened to him. So I want to first point out something that's not really the point of the text, so I'm going to go outside. I'm going to take a little scenic route for a moment here. Uh, but I just think it's incredibly fascinating and 
refreshing to me as I see this. Look at the two disciples that are going to prayer together. It's Peter and John. They're walking to the temple to be in prayer together. And you think of these two guys, how different they are. John had laid his head on Jesus' chest the night of the Last Supper. He's a very personal, uh, kind of an abstract, deep thinker type as we've gone through the Gospel of John. Uh, a little more emotive, uh, very caring for people. He was faithful till the end, the only one of the 12 who was at the cross there when Jesus died. And then there's Peter, kind of the opposite of everything I just said. Harsh, brash, black and white, foot in the mouth. He did the exact opposite of John. He denied Jesus and was not at the cross. He wasn't even just not at the cross, but denied Jesus. Yet despite their differences, they're walking together in unity to worship. John doesn't seem to be holding Peter's past sins against him. He's not like, ah, I'm Peter, whatever. I gotta go with Peter? Oh, man. Those things, those sins are in the past because they're gonna be ministering together. This outpouring of the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, this is uniting them. It's uniting their hearts. This is a beautiful picture of these two unlikely buddies going to temple together. And that's just something that jumped out uh, when I was uh, going through this, the varying members of the body of Christ working together. So they're approaching the temple. They're about to go through the gate beautiful. This is the gate that went beyond the the court of the Gentiles and into the court of women. So, of course, I have a picture because we're still early in the sermon here. So just to kind of give you an idea of uh, what particular gate this was. So this wasn't probably um, an entrance gate. So that that gate down below, that's the the golden gate that uh, Jesus will uh, return through, what he came into from Um, Palm Sunday, and then to the left, those are the southern steps, which we've seen a lot the last few weeks. So once you get into the the, the big area on the left or right, that's the court of the Gentiles, that's where uh, Jesus cast out the money changers. Um, Anyone could be there, Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. But once you went through that door there, that was only for Jews. Both uh, Jewish men and women could go through there, but no Gentiles. So these were the people that were going specifically to worship. Uh, The Gentiles weren't necessarily there to worship, uh, but if you went through there, you were there to worship. So uh, this man, he propped himself at that spot, um, most likely because that was the place where the most religious and devoted people were going to be going. So he kind of thinks, this is my best chance for receiving alms, because these are going to be the most committed believers. Now that gate was made of Corinthian bronze, which was very, very expensive, uh, more expensive even than gold and, and silver. Um, Josephus, uh, the the Jewish historian, spoke of it. Uh, He said that it took 20 men to move this gate, to open it and close it. That's how heavy this was, made with pure Corinthian bronze. It was truly a beautiful gate. And um, the three primary tenets of of Jewish worship were uh, the Word of God being preached, the Torah, uh, worship, uh, and then also showing kindness, which is the giving of alms. So these are the three kind of primary things that they went after. And so this guy knows that these are the three things that the the Jews uh, kind of put forward as their point of worship. So for him, he's thinking the best chance I have of making any kind of a livelihood would be to sit by this beautiful gate as these worshipers are going in to worship their God. I know that they are kind of uh, have to be given to uh, showing kindness and giving alms. So this is the most strategic spot for me. Now, undoubtedly, Peter and John have seen this man countless of times. I mean, they know him. He's over 40 years old. So they've seen this guy before. 
And they undoubtedly probably usually did what we usually do when we see someone on the corner begging. They probably, I'm just guessing, they probably looked away most of the time. And this paralytic seems to be living in such shame and misery that kind of his default also is to also divert his eyes. Just as most people diverted their eyes from him, he probably diverted his eyes from them, probably in hopelessness. But this time, however, Peter says, look at us. And now he gives him something that he wasn't even asking for, something far greater than what he was asking for. Now he's leaping with joy. So let's continue. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people who were utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's the structure on the left that you saw in that photo. So once again, we find people being astonished, just like we saw last week. The people are being astonished. They're looking at Peter and John with amazement. And what does Peter say? Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? Now this, honestly, this is kind of hilarious to me. Because if you remember Acts chapter 1, remember the disciples, they're staring at Jesus floating away in the sky, and then the angels appear, and they say the same thing. Men of Galilee, what are you staring at? Right? And Peter and the boys, they're probably thinking, are you serious? Like, the guy just floated away. What do you mean, what am I staring at? I, maybe this is like a normal thing in Angelville or wherever you guys come from, but this is not my typical Thursday. Right? And that's what I think Peter and, and all the guys are kind of thinking when they're seeing Jesus float away. And here I think Peter's kind of catching on to his new life. He kind of knows, like, this is going to be kind of a normal thing from now on. And so he kind of takes a cue from the angels, and he says the same exact thing. So as he heals this guy who's been paralyzed since birth, he looks at the people and goes, hey, what are you guys looking at? What are you looking at me for? So he's doing the same thing that he learned from these angels. Something seems to have overcome Peter in this moment. Rather than turning away, he says, look at us. And he tells them to get up. He specifically tells them, this isn't my, by my power or my piety, which is another word for godliness. He's saying, I didn't do this for my own ability, and God didn't reward me with this because I'm so godly. I didn't earn this with my godliness. So if it wasn't Peter that caused this, what, what brought about this miracle? Maybe it had something to do with the paralytic. Was there something that he did to garner healing was it his faith was there something special about him well we look at him and he wasn't even asking for healing i mean he's looking downward with no expectations of receiving anything much less healing so it wasn't his faith his expectations are actually very very low his expectations only rise once Peter says something to him. And then his expectation is for money. So there's no real like faith happening in this guy. So Peter doesn't have the power, nor has he earned it by some kind of reward for his godliness. The paralytic didn't seem to have any kind of faith in action at all. There was no extra worth, no extra value in the healer or in the healed. Peter didn't have extra value 
The paralytic didn't have any extra value, and yet the miracle still happens. That's important for us. It's important for us to understand. If you remember from the Gospel of John, we ran into a similar story, and it gives us some important insight. Look at John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's very similar right here. And his disciples asked Jesus, so Peter and John, they're here with Jesus, so they're witnessing this. So the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I'm wondering now if, if, if Peter and John are walking through, they've seen this guy their whole life, and maybe they've assumed their whole life he either sinned or his parents sinned. Maybe they thought that their whole entire life, and now they're walking by him and they're going, wait a minute, I've seen this before. I remember we were with Jesus, saw another guy who was blind from birth, and we asked, remember we asked Jesus that question, what did Jesus say? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but the reason this man was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a big difference. Was it sin? No, it was for God's glory. Two chapters later, we see the story of Lazarus. John chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard about Lazarus' sickness, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus gives us some very specific insight here. Church, you and I, we have various pains and sorrows. We have different circumstances and hurts that we've all gone through variably. And I don't know why God does this or does that or the other thing in your life or my life. I don't know why some die when they do. I don't know why some get certain sicknesses or cancer when they do or why divorces happen when they do. I don't know why he healed this blind man in John 9 or why he raised Lazarus and not someone else who died back then. I don't know. I don't know why he waited 40 some years to heal this guy. I don't know why he didn't heal him at 10 or 15 or 25. But if the change or the blessing that we desire, we look around our life, whatever that ailment, that, that struggle is, if that change, it's a struggle with sin, whatever it might be, if that thing doesn't change, that change doesn't happen, a circumstance or sickness is, is upon us, and God does not change those things for us, we should not assume that it's because of some lack of faith that we have, or because of some sin that we're committing. I mean, think of this guy. He had no faith, not even for a few coins. He had no faith. And yet now he's walking around, he's leaping. Right, the, the blind man, it wasn't his sin that had him there. There was a purpose that he did not know about. This guy didn't, for 40 plus years, this guy had no idea why he was paralyzed. No answers. He probably prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, sat at the beautiful gate, had no answers, had no idea why did this happen in my life? No answers, 40 plus years. Jesus makes it clear. Sin is often not at the center 
of your difficult circumstances, particularly, particularly the ones that are outside your control. But what is always, always, always at the center of every difficult circumstance is God's desire to show himself as the king of kings in your life. That is at the center of every difficulty that you face, no matter what it is, because God says, I will work all things for good for the one who loves me. They might have different reasons. There might be different circumstances, consequences. There are a number of things. But we can always know that God is always at the center of all those things. Somehow God has designed and ordained even sickness and death to serve his purpose in glorifying himself and bringing ultimate and better joy and wonder to the lives of his people. I don't get it, and we might have to wait 40 plus years to find out some things. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna go to the grave with some unanswered questions. That's just how it's gonna be. But eventually all those questions will be answered. You see what's going on in this passage today? He, his working is hidden in the darkness of all of our trials. He is working something in the darkness of all of our struggles, all of our pains, all of our confusion. There is something going on that he is doing. Church, know this, that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life at any given second of your life. Maybe you only see one or two or three. There's 9,997 more that he's doing. That's good news. We don't see it. We don't know it. The blind man didn't know it. Lazarus didn't know it. Well, Lazarus was dead, so he couldn't have known it. <laughs> this paralytic, he didn't know it. Peter and John didn't even know it. They'd seen this guy for however many years. But there's something going on behind the scenes. I think that Peter probably recalled this John 9 memory in the words of Jesus. I think that he saw this man who he knew to be paralyzed from birth and Maybe he was in this moment compelled to believe that God wants to be glorified. He sees it not as a problem to look away from, but an opportunity to glorify God. His perspective. The man didn't change at all, did he? The man didn't change. You know what changed? Peter changed. Peter changed. The man's the same. Same spot. Everything. Peter changed. Nothing else changed. As we see what happens next, we see that God had appointed even this time and this moment as a means to bring about an even greater joy than even the blessing that was being pursued by the paralytic. He just wanted some money, but then he got healing. And even though he also brought healing, but it also bring even something beyond the healing and brought this awareness of the power of Jesus, the Messiah. And not just for the paralytic, but also to all the people who had just witnessed this. So Peter takes the opportunity now to share the gospel. So look at verse 13 here. Peter then speaks as he says to the people, why are you looking at me? I didn't do this. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. And here's where he gets into that similar sermon that we saw at Pentecost. He's gonna share some harsh truth with them. This, he glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over. You religious people that are walking in the temple to give your alms and your worship and hear the Torah, Oh, guess what? You guys killed the servant of God. You delivered over him and you denied him in, uh, in the presence of Pilate 
when he had decided to release him. He's like, even, even Pilate, the Roman, he wanted to release him, and you guys killed the servant of God. I mean, he's just piling it on here. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead. And you killed the author of life. Peter's just digging in and digging in whom God raised from the dead. To this, we, me and John here, my buddy John, we're witnesses of this. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. You guys know this. You guys know this guy. This is not, this is not a ruse. This is not fake. This is not phony. You guys know him. You've walked by him. You've ignored him for decades. He's made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. But now, brothers, now he kind of softens up a little bit, I think, here. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know you didn't know better. This is reminiscent also of Jesus' words, right? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. You didn't know any better, as did also your rulers, right? The Pharisees, they didn't, they didn't know any good. But, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer you guys know the Torah you're going to go listen to right now? It's been telling us about this guy like forever. So you didn't read the instruction manual. <laughs> That's basically what he's saying. What God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So he's saying, I know you did this in ignorance, but you can't plead ignorance because this was made plain to us through the scriptures that we so love. And we just looked the other way. Just because you didn't read the instructions doesn't mean you're off the hook. You can't plead ignorance. It's like Romans chapter one. You can claim all day long to, know, to, to say that you, you know there is no God, but even nature makes it plain that there is a God, and you know deep down there is. You just choose to ignore it. So Peter's speaking similarly as Paul and similarly as Jesus when he's on the cross. So he says in verse 19, so he says, so in light of that, because I know that he's probably thinking, I'm going to tell them that they killed Jesus, the servant, but I know what they're thinking. They're thinking, well, I didn't know any better, so you can't count it against me. He's like, no, 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 you're not off the hook. And so therefore, in verse 19, he goes, repent. Now that you know what you did, maybe you did it in ignorance, all right, but now you know better because I just told you plainly. Now what are you going to do about it? You still going to plead ignorance? No, I, I, you, Peter's like, I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity right now. Repent, therefore and turn back. Don't keep going that way. Turn back so that your sins would be blotted out, that times of refreshing would come to you from the presence of the Lord. This, this guy that you killed, he actually wants to refresh you still even though you killed him. That's how good this guy is. Turn back and repent so that he can refresh you Refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So saying, look, Moses even told us this. 
And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then Peter says, and all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days that we're sitting in right now. And he says to these guys, you're the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers who said to Abraham, God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And so Peter says, God, having raised up his servant, this Jesus, he sent him to you first. He sent him to you so that, to, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So he's saying, look, you can claim ignorance, but I'm telling you plainly what God did for you by sending Jesus, and it's not too late. And look, he even healed this man so that I could even have your attention for a little bit, so you'd actually listen to this. The goal of all of the miracles and healings and wonders that were performed was never just simply for temporal relief for one person. It wasn't just for the blind man, just for Lazarus, just for this this paralyzed man. Because let's face it, eventually, Lazarus, he died again. The blind man would eventually have his eyesight grow dim in his old age. This paralyzed man, eventually his body would get old and his body would wither. But these gifts are given out of love and mercy and not just so that their eyes would be able to see physically, but so that their eyes and their hearts would be drawn towards a greater gift that they would see spiritually with their eyes and be drawn to the greater gift, which is God's grace and salvation. And even more so that our eyes would be drawn towards the even, even the giver of the gift, which is God himself. So these, these gifts that are given of, of healing isn't just for the healing itself, and it's not even just simply for the gift of salvation, which is amazing, but it's that we'd actually receive the greatest gift, which is God himself. I mean, look at this interaction is produced as people are marveling at God using this common, uneducated man like Peter. That's what draws their attention. They're like, who healed this guy? That guy, Peter, what's going on here? They're astounded. Once again, they're astounded. And so Peter takes that opportunity and shares Jesus with them and another opportunity for Peter to share the gospel. And we're gonna see later in the text next week that the number grew then to 5,000 because of all these people that are listening. I don't know what Peter was thinking that day as he walked, but Peter, I think, was, I think Peter was actively looking. I think Peter saw and knew what Christ had done in him, how he had changed him, restored him, and I think Peter just walked around life with just new eyes. I think his heart was on the lookout. Remember, Peter's fresh off of three denials, and he's fresh off of Jesus restoring him three times. He's just been given the Holy Spirit, seeing God actually use him despite his many flaws. His mind is probably swirling with the memories of ministry with Jesus, his teachings, his example of compassion and mercy. He knows that he's personally been changed, personally been saved. He's walked to the temple to pray thousands of times in his life and probably seen this guy hundreds of times and probably today he's just walking a little bit differently with his eyes just a little bit more opened with a fresh perspective. He's looking. He's looking like a fisherman out to try to find where the fish are. 
He's looking for a good spot to fish. His faith and his confidence is growing, not his faith and confidence in himself, but his faith and confidence in the truth that God not only can, but actually will use him despite all of his flaws and his weaknesses. I wonder what compelled Peter that day. Did, did, did Peter see a bit of himself in this paralytic? Did he see this man and think, that should be me? Or maybe did he think, maybe that was me? Maybe not physically paralyzed, but spiritually paralyzed. Spiritually unable. Spiritually unable to take care of my own self. Lost and poor, spiritually uh, empty. Maybe he just he saw this man and thought, that's me right there. That's me. What, what did Jesus do for me? He, I know what he did for me, so what can I do for this man? I don't know. But I do know that Peter's becoming more like Jesus. I know that Peter's carrying the aroma of Christ with him now. Mark chapter 6, verse 34, we have a story about Jesus. It says, when Jesus went ashore... He saw a great crowd. Look what happens when Jesus saw the crowd. He wasn't annoyed or put out or like, oh, man, all these people. No, he had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I think Peter sees this man with all the different stories and things that he saw Jesus do and say, Peter sees this man, and I think maybe for the first time ever he has compassion on him. Because he sees this man as a sheep without a shepherd. I think Peter sees himself in this man. And Peter now is becoming a shepherd, just like his shepherd. Peter moved from the glory of saving 3,000 people on the southern steps. And now Peter's going after just the one. Just one. Peter doesn't need to have, you know, the, the big preaching ministry, all this. He's like... One guy needs Jesus. I'm going to go after him. One guy. The least, the last, and the lost. Just as Jesus commanded Peter at his restoration, feed my lambs. I think Peter's walking around thinking, how do I do that? How do I feed lost sheep? That guy, I've seen him forever. I never see anyone talk to him. He's a sheep without a shepherd. Peter, I think, sees himself as that sheep who also didn't have a shepherd, a man who was a paralytic in heart. And so I think his compassion is growing in unison with his faith that's growing. As his faith grows, his compassion grows. I just, I don't think you can divorce those two. If your faith is growing, your compassion should be growing. And we also have this paralytic. I think oftentimes, like the paralytic, our expectations are too low. We become discouraged. It's not bad that he desires money. He has real life needs. But he has bigger needs. And I don't even just mean the healing of his body. I mean bigger needs than even that. We often look at our lives and, and our response to the Lord. Our requests are often based on our perceived needs. I'm not saying they're, they're not real needs. We have real needs. But a lot of times our prayers and our requests to the Lord are based off of our perceived needs, whether real or simply and only perceived. They're often practical. They're often about our comforts or our preferences, things that are bothering us, that are kind of annoying to us in our way, that just don't make our life easy. 
We pray according to our wisdom, what we think would fix a situation or fix a person. But in reality, amidst all of our hardships, all of our afflictions, all of our trials, there is often so much more that the Lord actually wants to give us. What he wants to even surprise us with. I think the Lord wants to surprise us in our afflictions. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis. You may have heard this one before. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. It's not that we have like these really strong desires for comfort and peace, but he actually finds our desires as being too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. We fool around with, with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is actually being offered to us. God's like, well, I, I can give you this. I know, but I just want this. And we oftentimes think, oh, my temptation for, for alcohol or sex or whatever is too strong. It's too strong. This, this, the lust of the flesh is too strong. It's like, no, your, your desire for comfort, whatever you're feeling like you want to get from this thing, comfort or acceptance, it's actually, it's not too strong. It's too weak because you're settling on something really cheap here. If you really, if you want an awesome acceptance, come on over here. Step into my office. I can give you really great acceptance here. I can give you really great joy. Like, you're... You're actually, your, your desires are too weak. You're settling for garbage when I've got glory over here. So he says it's like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant to the offer of having a vacation, a holiday at the sea, going on a cruise ship. You want to go on this cruise ship, little boy? No, I just want to, I just want to sit in the alley and just play with trash. But, 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 no, no, this is good right here. And C.S. Lewis ends and he says, we are far too easily pleased. We settle. This man's sights were aimed literally too low. He was looking down, looking away, hoping maybe for some pocket change, but the Lord wanted to give him so much more. But he was far too easily pleased with just a few coins. This week I met with someone and I, I was sharing with them how about six or seven-ish years ago, I think six and a half years ago, somewhere around there, I had uh, just a, a very changing kind of a revelation for myself. Um, I've shared before just the, my kind of on-again, off-again uh, battle with depression since I was 14. And during all those times when I would be in that place, when it's just, you know, you just can't seem to find your way out and... I would always pray and ask the Lord just to take it from me. I mean, have you ever prayed that prayer? I mean, whatever it is, depression or something else. Like, just, Lord, just take this from me. Get me through this, Lord. God, would you just change this? I, I, I hate that I'm like this. Why, why, why do I keep going through this? You just pray, God, get me out of this. Probably the same prayer that this paralytic prayed for 40 plus years. God, would you just change me? Just change me. And I was telling this guy this week that about six and a half years ago, I, I realized something, that I was going to God just to get something from him. I was going to God just to get some gifts, uh, going to God just to, I don't know, like a genie in a bottle kind of a thing. And it was kind of a, a mini prosperity gospel. You know, going to God, if I had big enough faith if I was godly enough, then surely he would bless me and he would give me this thing that I'm asking for. I'm not 
I'm asking for a big, this is a, this is a big ask right here, right? I'm, I'm asking for a really big thing. Would you just save me from this? So I'm, in my mind, I'm going, I'm not settling for something. I want something big. I want a big healing here, Lord. And I realize that back then that I was settling, that I was settling for just making some mud pies. Because really what the Lord wanted for me was not that I would find some healing or some change or some whatever. And those aren't bad things. I, I mean, real needs in my life. But I had never actually desired to find God in the midst of it. I wanted him to get me out of it. I wanted him to kind of throw me a life preserver and pull me out so I could be with him on the shore. But I never really sought to find him in the midst of my pain, my sorrow, my depression, whatever. And I was thinking about that actually during the song that the band sang this morning. There's another in the fire, just finding Christ in the fire. Not just saying, God, get me out of the fire. That's not a bad prayer. I'm not saying don't pray those things. But then we also say, but God, but God, if, if I'm gonna stay in the fire, would you meet me here? I wanna find you. I, wanna, I want something better than just you rescuing me from something. That's good, but I want better. I wanna find you in the midst of all of this. And I can tell you, church, that my prayers have changed in these last six years. I still pray to get me through different things, right? Just whatever that thing is. But I'm always, always, always now walking around with my eyes open going, God, what do you want me to see right now while I'm in this? I don't want to just be just looking at the shore. I'm going to be looking around right now for opportunities for you to be glorified in and through my life. What do you want me? How do I walk through this with the aroma of Christ? Not trying to get to the shore so I can have the aroma of Christ, but I want to walk through it right now with the aroma of Christ. And I can't do that if I'm only looking for tomorrow's blessing. I got to look for today. How do I walk with the aroma of Christ right now where I'm at today? That's, that's a hard prayer. It's a hard prayer. I've shared that before, uh, that with my dad, who was an unbeliever, spiritually paralyzed for 68 years. Spiritually paralyzed. I mean, fear and a lack of understanding of God's love paralyzed my dad for 68 years. And yet in the last six weeks of his life, he said, I love my suffering because it makes me closer to Jesus because he suffered for me. Paralyzed for 68 years and now a sickness and death is bringing the glory of God right before his face. In my life sometimes, church, I know in your life, your head just lowers like this paralytic. My eyes, they lower. I'm asking for a way through it. And it's as if now the Lord, not Peter, but the Lord says to me, son, look at me. Look up at me. I see you there. I see you spiritually paralyzed in your sorrows, your griefs, whatever it is. Look at me. Look up at me. I'm walking by. Look, look at me. I have something more to give to you. 
I want to give you a gift. Look up at me. It's something better than what you're even asking for. I've got, I've got a miracle for you. I've got a real gift for you. I've got a changed heart that I want to give to you. I want to give you joy in your sorrow. I know that seems impossible, but I've got a great gift for you. I mean, church, he, he promises us, he promises us power over sin. That's a crazy gift right there. Power over sin? You know you already have been given that power? Do you know that? The Holy Spirit's in you. You have power over your sin. But are you just kind of hanging out making mud pies in the alley? That, that's what we're doing. We're, we're just too easily pleased. He, he promises us peace that surpasses understanding. That's a cool gift. You can have that. Just look up at him. He promises abundant life. He promises contentment, whether we have much or little. That's a great gift. We just, we just don't believe. We just don't look up. We ask for cheap fixes. We ask for Band-Aids for our perceived needs. We want the easy way out through this situation or that situation. But not only that, it gets even better. God doesn't just have better gifts to give us than the ones we're asking for. But even better, he says, and for my greatest gift, I want to present you me. Look what he says, what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And guess what? The peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, that's awesome. That's a great gift. But it doesn't stop there. Then Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, if we're able to look up to, to God and see these things and look at these things, Whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about things, these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and then look what happens. The God of peace will be with you. That's different than the peace of God, isn't it? The peace of God's awesome, but to have the God of peace be with me? That's amazing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with having the peace of God, but I'm even, I'm amazed if I get to have the God of peace with me. Like, do I want just the peace of God going through life, or would I want God with me, walking with me through all of the trials and struggles that I have? I'd rather have the God of peace. Peace of God's awesome, though, don't get me wrong. But to have the God of peace. C.S. Lewis also says, I know, O Lord, why you don't utter any answer when I pray to you, because you yourself, you're the answer. You're the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer could suffice? Whatever it is that you're praying for, whatever it is I'm praying for, they're not bad things to pray for, but there's a, there's a better gift out there for you. There's a better gift out there for me, and it's God himself, to find him in everything. So like we saw last week, having a desire to be with Jesus, to carry his aroma through the valley of the shadow of death, my expectations are sometimes too low and we should not be distracted with the cheap imitations that the world offers. And though oftentimes we're, we're like the paralytic, we aren't looking or asking for that above and beyond. The good news is that also like the paralytic, because of God's love and grace, 
and his desire to be glorified, he will often do the miracle anyway. He's gonna surprise us with joy in the midst of our sorrows. And though we might be like more like that paralytic with low expectations, we ought to move and become more like Peter, aware of our inability, aware of our utter dependency, but looking for the opportunity to take part in bringing the unexpected joy and miracle to another, looking for opportunities that aren't in themselves the joy, but looking for opportunities that pave the way to have others hear the gospel and behold the truth and the beauty of Jesus. And so as we close, Peter ends his mini-sermon with the gospel. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come. Your sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We look forward to the restoration of all things because Christ promises us that time of refreshing. And God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So as you go to work or to school or spend time with friends during summer, seeing family, walk differently like Peter did. Ask the Spirit to open your eyes. To look for opportunities to be a blessing, and not just for the sake of the blessing itself, but to open the door for the sake of sharing the gospel. If you're like the paralytic, look up. Look up. Expect more and expect differently. Aim to find Christ in your trials because he wants to bless you with the gift of himself so that even in and through your trials, you would be a blessing then to all the families of the earth knowing that the times of refreshing are coming. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as uh, admittedly people with just low expectations. We, we settle for uh, not bad things, uh, they're good things and they're things that we can still, can and should be praying for, having hope for, having faith for. Praying for change of circumstance, praying for uh, healing of, of body, healing of just, you know, emotions, mentally. Uh, these are things we should be praying for. But we also want to pray even beyond that, that while we're praying for those things, we would also be praying to find you in the midst of all of this so that you would be glorified. That we would walk differently like Peter and John were that day. That we would recognize that you give good gifts regardless of our inabilities, regardless of our level of faith. You're a, you're a good God regardless of how good we are. And so we, we pray with expectation. We pray fervently. We pray for the souls of those in our lives who don't know you. We pray for those in our lives who are hurting and suffering through sickness, through loss, financial hardship, divorces. We pray for all these things. And God, what we would just have crown all of those prayers is that we would find you in all of it, that you would be glorified in all of it, that the gospel would shine 
through our lives, that all these things that happen to us would be opportunities, like Peter, like this paralytic, there would be opportunities to share the gospel with those around us, that you would be magnified and glorified. So help us, Lord. Help us to be your witnesses, your billboards, to display the glory of God, to share Jesus and bless all the families of the earth. We thank you, Lord. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.